Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, today with a message titled, What Spiritual Gifts Tell Us? So turn in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. When Paul begins with the words, now concerning, he's signaling two things. First, he's signaling a change in topics. Now, that's good. So we know that this is a new section in the book of 1 Corinthians, and, and therefore it makes sense to treat 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 as a separate unit. Secondly, he's signaling that the topic comes from the Corinthians. The church in Corinth had sent Paul a letter asking him a number of questions of which they were awaiting an answer, and 1 Corinthians is the record of Paul's answers to this troubled church. There was a relationship that Paul enjoyed with the Corinthian church. In the year AD 50, Paul first arrived in Corinth, an important city in Greece. According to Acts 18, he began by making tents, for that was his profession. With all the tourists constantly coming to that city, this was probably a pretty lucrative business. That's how he survived, but that's not why he was there. He was there to preach Jesus to Corinth and, and to begin a church. And so he began in the Jewish synagogue, speaking there, reasoning with Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. Well, they kicked him out of the synagogue, and he made his base of operations in the house of a man named Titius Justus. And by all accounts, many people showed up there, and he was winning many to Christ. So a year and a half, Paul preached and built a church, and he would have taught them the basics of the Christian faith and explained carefully what was the gospel and how to share it with others and how to live the Christian life. And he would have appointed elders to lead, and, and then he left to go do the same thing in another city. And sometime later, maybe about two years later, while, while Paul was working in the city of Ephesus, he got a message that the church in Corinth was racked with problems. There were deep divisions in the church. They, they mistrusted their leaders. Christians were suing other Christians in a law court. There were a number of cases of sexual immorality, which you know, wasn't that uncommon for a city like Corinth. And they were struggling with divorce and remarriage. They argued about whether or not they were free to participate in food that was offered to idols because the city of Corinth was filled with pagan temples. And they had disputes about gender, our roles attached to being a man or a woman. The Lord's Supper had denigrated into a drunken feast, and, and some didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. It seemed like, from one perspective, that the wheels were coming off. But not everything was bad. Paul began this letter with joy, expressing confidence in the rich grace of God that was given them in Christ Jesus. On top of that, the Corinthian Christians realized they needed help. And so they took the initiative and wrote Paul and, and asked him a number of questions. And they were questions that they hadn't figured out and needed answers to in order to get things right. So there was hope. And if they got answers, they would get out of the mess that they were in. And sometimes in this book, Paul is answering their written questions to him 
and it's probably come to him from the elders of that church. You know, most Bible teachers believe that when Paul begins with the words, now concerning, he's actually answering a detailed written question. Of course, we don't know exactly what the question was, but by paying attention to what Paul is writing, we can pretty well figure out what they were asking and reconstruct the question. The question that they wrote must have sounded something like this. Is it really true that certain spiritual gifts, and here they meant gifts like tongues and prophecy, are evidence of spirituality? In other words, are people who speak in tongues and those who prophesy more spiritual than the rest of us? Because the Christians in Corinth had so many divisions, it seems logical to assume that they would also be divided on this question. Some would have said, well, yes, and some would surely have said, no. In many ways, their questions are quite natural. Those scholars who have studied the culture and the writings of ancient Corinth will tell you that a common feature of pagan worship in that city was its fascination with divine oracles. That is, the gods and goddesses would speak through the prophets. A very famous one was called the Oracle of Delphi, in which a priestess would sit on a tripod and she would be drugged and then fall into a trance in in which she was said to be possessed by Apollo and then say something, and often things that she said were outrageous and sometimes made no sense at all, and which no doubt deeply impressed many. It was a sign of spirituality to receive these messages from the gods. But I have no doubt that the Corinthian Christians would have made a distinction between themselves and those kinds of experiences. See, there's no indication that any experience of tongues or prophecy in Corinth was ever outrageous or pagan. But it still led to a question. Since we have spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit, like tongues and prophecy among us, are these signs that the person who exercises them is a deeply spiritual person? And some would have said yes, and others would have thought exactly the opposite. And the question was a reflection of the culture in which they came from. Now, of course, and here's what particularly fascinates me today. This kind of question is still relevant to us. Now, there are those who will argue that tongues is a sign of the baptism of the Spirit and that the presence of the gift of tongues would be an indicator of having reached a higher spiritual plane. And then there are those among us who feel that tongues have ceased and that those who practice tongues are probably people who are interested only in subjective, experience-driven Christianity and, and often pay very little attention to a serious study of Scripture. And so, you know, they would argue that speaking in tongues is an indicator of a lower spiritual plane. In other words, depending upon your church, you're damned if you do and if you're damned if you don't. Now, here we are 2,000 years later, and it still seems that the question that so divided Christians in Corinth in that day continues to divide us today. So let's have Paul answer the question for Corinthian believers and for us today. Verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, please notice that the normal word that Paul uses for spiritual gifts is the Greek word charismata which interestingly enough is where we get our word charismatic today. But the word he uses in verse 1 is the word pneumaticon. The word either means a spiritual thing, which could refer to spiritual gifts, or it can refer to a spiritual person. I think that Paul used the word very carefully, leaving it deliberately vague. Was he now talking about spiritual gifts or about spiritual persons? I think he's talking about both and even more. 
He begins by saying about spiritual gifts and about spiritual persons and about spiritual things and even about spirituality in general. This is because the gifts of the Holy Spirit operate inside an individual who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul assumes, and that's why he calls them brothers. He means that they're his brothers and sisters in Christ, forgiven, filled with God's Holy Spirit. And so in the very section of Scripture in which we think it's, it's all about spiritual gifts, especially those controversial gifts like tongues and prophecy and words of knowledge and miracles and, and all manner of things, Paul rather takes us to the relationship of a gift of the Spirit and the person who has the gift. And here's what he's saying in this passage. Paul is saying first that it's important to get some things right when we talk about the matters that you wrote about. It's important to understand that the presence of gifts is no indicator of how spiritual you are and how important it is to understand that today. That when a certain gift is absent in someone, it's also not an indicator of how spiritual they are. Rather, spiritual gifts are given by grace. And this is the idea behind the entire section. And so, for instance, in chapter 12, verse 13, Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And then in chapter 12, verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. (laughs) That's saying that not one certain person can say to somebody else who has very different gifts that, I don't need you or you're lower than I am. Chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, gifts are given to bind us together. They are meant to influence our love relationship. It's God's grace to us. And like all grace, it's not a reflection of the one receiving it. It's rather a reflection of the one giving it. I hope you see the implication. Gifts do not equal spirituality, neither the absence or the presence of them. So Paul says, let's talk about spirituality before we talk about gifts. Let's answer the question of who is genuinely spiritual. And about this, I don't want you to be uninformed. Hi, Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. I'm grateful to express our gratitude for those who supported the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift during our fiscal year-end match campaign. Last month, we reached out across the country to ask for your help to sustain the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. We're excited to share that we reached our match campaign goal of $75,000 in June, resulting in $150,000 being contributed to our fiscal year-end. The campaign was such a success that now an additional $50,000 has been pledged to continue our match campaign through July. So for the month of July, we share with you the opportunity to participate in an additional $50,000 for dollar match campaign. Every dollar you give will be doubled. Thank you for your generosity and commitment. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. reading verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, you might wonder why verse 2 is there. Why does Paul now, having introduced us to the matter of who is spiritual, 
and the relationship of that to the gifts, why then move to speaking about the Corinthians' pagan past? Now, it is true that many of these Christians had come from a pagan background. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, many of them, before coming to Christ, had been sexually immoral and had been idolaters. The Corinthian world offered many different religious groups with all sorts of experiences of divine inspiration. Some involved experiences of ecstatic frenzy. Others did not. Whatever suited your taste, you could just simply pick your idol. But, and this is key, all pagans in Corinth, without exception, would have participated in what can be called an idol pageant in which one would proceed down a sacred route and you would be led with great pageantry to an assortment of idols where they would have been worshipped. Now, when Paul says, however you were led, he's probably referring to just that festival of idols in which everyone was led to an idol. Now, notice Paul says that when you got to that idol, it was mute. Now, here Paul is employing Old Testament language about idols. One's reminded of the prophets of Baal in the time of Elijah, standing and shouting and cutting themselves and saying, Oh, Baal, speak. And remember how Elijah just mocked them. Or think about Jeremiah 10, verse 5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, remember that time how deeply you were deluded and, and how the idols did nothing for you and didn't give you forgiveness of sins and offered you no eternal hope? They didn't offer you a changed life and a changed heart, and yet how easily you were led. Remember that? So why is Paul bringing that up? Well, Paul wants to show them that their former idolatry failed them at every point and that it was premised on ignorance. And then he says, don't be ignorant now, being led by empty ideas of the day. In other words, don't make a decision on who or what is spiritual by using the criterion of ignorance as before. Don't be led by the opinions of others. Don't be led by reports of how spiritual some people are. Don't go by hunches and don't go by the crowd. You know, I'm old enough that I've seen this thing played out often. Usually, it starts this way. I mean, someone is going to say, there must be more than this. In other words, you know, it starts with the bored Christian saying, there just has to be more. And so, off they go looking for a new experience. I remember when the big experience was being slain in the Spirit. In other words, has the Holy Spirit knocked you down? And if you did it often, well, you must be really spiritual. And then came the laughing revival, and then came gold dust and supernatural fillings in your teeth. And always behind all of this was the belief that if you had certain gifts or experiences, well, you were more spiritual. But here you might think I'm popping off at, at those of the charismatic background. But I can give you a hundred of different examples. In some groups, you're more spiritual if you're poor, and some if you're rich. In some groups, you're more spiritual if you're, let's say, you're 50 than, let's say, when you're 20. In some groups, you're more spiritual if you live communally. In some groups, what you wear indicates your spirituality, and in some groups, it's what you eat. You know, I remember years ago, I pastored a church in which I was overwhelmed by the spirituality of one woman. Her calm demeanor in all circumstances, it just inspired me. One day she came to my office, and this elegant, dignified woman curled into a ball on the floor and began rocking and complaining about her husband. I was shocked. And then I found out that she had come off her medication. I didn't know she was on medication. All of those years of thinking her calmness was a thing of the Spirit, 
Well, it turned out it had been her medication. You see, we base spirituality on so many things that we see. And in Corinth, the question was, do gifts indicate spiritual things? And Paul is saying, don't be ignorant and simply be led in your opinion the way that you were when you were pagans. Instead, be informed. Let me ask you this. Do you know what constitutes a genuine spirituality? Or do you go by hunches or what other people say? Let's read verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You know, there are some who argue from this passage that perhaps some people in the Corinthian church had fallen into some form of pagan ecstatic trance and in wild exuberance had said Jesus is accursed. And then they argue that this left people confused about what true spirituality was all about. Now, that seems very improbable to me, and and for two reasons. First, I can't imagine anyone doing that in a Christian service. And secondly, if they did, can you imagine Paul not dealing with that matter in this letter? And as a matter of church discipline, I mean, after all, he spends a whole chapter dealing with sexual immorality. Do you think he wouldn't mention that? Of course he would. I think the better explanation is to ask, who would say Jesus is accursed, or literally, anathema on Jesus? Well, we do find that language, for instance, in the Bible. Listen to the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. I'm reading from John 8. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. See, that same kind of anathema was spoken to Jesus as he went to the cross. In John 19, Jesus is before Pilate. Listen to what the Jewish leaders say in John 19. Pilate speaks first. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king. You see, the words anathema be to Jesus means Jesus be accursed. In reality, I think Paul is asking, do you think that those people who voted to crucify Jesus were really spiritual people? The answer is no. How do you know? Answer, I know on the basis of how they responded to Jesus. And it's Paul who says, great answer. And then how do you know that anyone is spiritual? Oh, yes, if they confess Jesus as Lord. See, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is the very first and oldest of all Christian confessions. To confess Jesus as Lord means something. First of all, it's a confession of faith. That is to say, it's a confession of belief. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, the confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, means that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on the cross for your sins, well, you're going to be saved. And here Paul adds, if you have come to be saved, don't you know how you came to be saved? You came to be saved by something that the Holy Spirit taught you. How else would you have believed? But, of course, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is a statement of surrender into his hands. That is, to call Jesus Lord is to fall in submission at his feet. It's to walk in obedience to him. Of course, there's more. Paul in Philippians 2 speaks about having the attitude of Jesus, meaning that we learn to imitate him. And there he means in humility. 
So Paul is saying in answer to your question, is the person who speaks in tongues and prophecies more spiritual? And he responds, well, let's remember how we as Christians measure spirituality. We measure it in faith and in obedience to Christ, walking as he taught us to walk. Find me a person who walks in faith and in obedience to Christ, and that's genuine spirituality. Gifts of the Spirit are not a measure of spirituality. Confessing Christ as Lord is. Now, Someone's going to say, well, what advantage can there be of having spiritual gifts? Well, there's great advantage. And that's what the next several chapters are all about. So let's not get ahead of ourselves now. But, but we can say that spiritual gifts make us effective as we serve one another, as we glorify Christ, as we make him known to the world. You know, some believers will say, well, tongues and prophecy and words of wisdom and so forth, well, they only divide us. Well, not so, because they are gifts of the Spirit. What actually divides us is spiritual immaturity and a lack of discernment. But Paul says, first things first, because it's so easy for us to confuse giftedness with spirituality, we need to settle that thing first. Not gifts, but Christ-likeness is what we want. And until that matter gets settled, we can't possibly talk about the other things. John, with all you said today, uh, help me out. How would you define or why do we struggle with some type of definition of what a real spiritual person is? I think, Ben, every one of us wants to follow someone. I mean, we look for people who are spiritual mentors. Uh, We look for individuals whose lives that we want to emulate. And, And frankly, that's what we're told to do. Paul says, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So, you know, for those who are young in the faith, I mean, this was an excellent way for them to simply look at him and to follow his example. Now, in today's world, because of so much of the experience of spiritual gifts, some of us have come to the the erroneous conclusion that, you know, if an individual, let's put it in our terminology, preaches well, communicates well, handles himself well, let's say from a pulpit, we would say, well, that must be a spiritual person, when as a matter of fact, that may not be an indication of what spirituality is all about. So, uh, you know, again, to help people to see that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things are a part of what the Holy Spirit does in a person who's growing in the Lord. And when we see that in someone, we ought to emulate them. That's the idea behind that. Thanks so much, John, and we look forward to uh, returning again to our series tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like none other, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our last trip said, Now I can relate to the places of the Bible visually because I've actually been there. The planning and organization of the trip was excellent. I'd love to go on another Back to the Bible Canada trip in the future. So make your plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada with on-location teaching with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld evenings of entertainment with laugh Against Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. More information and trip itinerary and registration forms are available now. 
So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to learn more.